Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the intimate. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) This week on The Pleasure Podcast, we welcome an expert in all things historically sexual. It's the historian, lecturer and author, Dr Kate Lister. But you might know her best as the mind behind Twitter's very own, Whores of Yore. The research behind Whores of Yore, a wildly popular historical archive of sexuality and sex work, has culminated in Kate's recent book, A Curious History of Sex. This whistle-stop tour through sexual history covers immense ground, including the etymology of cunt, the control of women's desire, the history of same-sex relationships, pubic hair, monkey testicle transplants, sex robots and more. We speak to Kate about this erudite, funny and at times very shocking book. It's the naughty history lesson we didn't receive in school, but wish we had. Sex history as a a study and a discipline, it's only within the last so 10 years or so, that it's not just about, you know, carry on up the Khyber and things like that. So it's not a new field of study, but it's difficult for it to be taken seriously a lot of the time. I don't know if anybody starts off as a small child going, I'm going to be a sex historian. I didn't start off thinking I was going to be a sex doctor. So, you know. You begin the book by talking about your use of the word whore. Well, when I first started the Twitter feed, I was in my office, I was bored, and I thought, whore rhymes with yours, that's hysterical. And that is about the subtotal of the planning that went into it. Because I was researching illicit sex, sinful sex, naughty sex, sex that people say you shouldn't really be having. And I'd thought of the word whore more in that sort of context. So I used it, and then pretty quickly, the sex worker community started engaging with the feed, and... There was a, a number of challenges to my using that word. Do I think it's appropriate to use it? It's one of those quite contested words, which is that within the sex work community, there are many that use it as kind of like in joke, the kind of the idea that it's all right for them to use it, but nobody else should do, really. And I hadn't considered that. And I always feel really bad about that. To me, it just meant a slutty person, but they, they were quite right. That became the basis of the first chapter in the book as in, well, what does that word mean? And how did it get to be offensive? Um, Because originally, it didn't mean someone that sells sex. It means somebody that was just quite slutty. (laughs) Which, in the 14th century, was everyone, I think. (laughs) And it's not until about the 17th or 18th century that it starts to take on the meaning of someone that sells sex at the same time. But its original root meaning is hura or whore and it means to love and to desire. Wow. Some etymologists think that's where it started. So the sex worker community have been incredibly generous and patient with me and I can only say thank you to them for calling me out and guiding my research. The word sex worker feels quite new generally, certainly to me. In my small bubble anyway, that I've been aware that that is the term one should be using instead of the word prostitute. But the development, the evolution of how we use words feels like it really underpins your book and underpins how we live our lives and how sex is discussed and practised and understood. I I think that you can get an awful lot out of language study. It serves as a vehicle throughout history and you, you can trace how words and attitudes have changed by what words mean, mean at various points. The word prostitute genuinely wouldn't have occurred to most people. This is an insulting term. They thought that it's just a descriptive term. But when you actually stop and you pause and you look at it, you kind of realise that it is loaded, that it can be weaponised as an insult. And the fact that it can be weaponised as an insult tells you that there's a lot of judgement 
implicit in it. As a sex worker, that's been around since like the, the 90s, it, it reflects the huge diversity that goes on within people that sell sex. And above anything else, if a group of people are saying, please don't call us that, call us this, just yeah. do it. Yeah. Just do it. If you don't, it's a dick move, isn't it? But the word prostitute, actually, that's sort of more 18th century, 19th century. Until that point, it had been whore. <laughs> that turns up in legal records or strumpets, uh, harlots, uh, and any number of slang terms, but common prostitute was one that was used very, very regularly. Yeah. I love it when like you um, talk about the word cunt. I love the word cunt. I think that it's, it's just some great, it's like a grunt, isn't it? Grunt, cunt. You just you can spit it out and you can shout it at people and it's kind of dirty and naughty and, and you can see it in people's eyes when they go, oh God, she just said the word. Um, cunt is one of those words where it's actually so old that after a while etymologists have to go, Actually, we don't know. We've traced it as back as far as we can, but we're not sure. But again, the Proto-Indo-European root is the ku sound. They think that that also led to queen, that it also has its roots in a sound like gyne, which gave us uh, gynecology and genetics. That means, that means woman. And ku sound also means knowledge. That gave us uh, ken. If you're in Scotland, if you ken something, it means that you know something. So the original roots to cunt are, so it's actually quite an empowering word. Yeah, I suppose now we, I think there is an idea that people will like to ridicule Eve Ensler's vagina monologues a bit nowadays. It's where you're then chanting at the end, cunt, 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 the one particular monologue. I think nowadays people find it a bit eye-rolly, don't they? As if perhaps maybe it's sort of rather dated 70s yeah. feminism or something. I've not bumped into it. Well, I'm from Leeds, maybe we haven't got that far yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's still quite revolutionary to us. When that play first came out, it was absolutely groundbreaking because yeah. people just didn't talk yeah. about that. We still have them healthcare professionals not being able to say the word vagina as, or feeling really uncomfortable saying that. I've always wanted to know this. What is the terminology that most people use? Presumably they don't come in and go, there's something wrong with my cunt, which would just be... Downstairs. That's downstairs. Huh? There's something... We have, there, there's, there's all this, just generally a euphemism for it. There's not it's generally weird, saying, there's all my front bits. My front uh, yeah, bits. My, my front hurts. It would say vagina. No one's ever said vulva. No one's ever said vulva. No. I'm trying to imagine sitting down in front of a doctor and saying, yes, I've had a few problems with my cunt. <laughs> but I do feel like it's so sexually loaded, it would feel like I was doing some sort of well, a come on. This is the, God, yeah. When you're talking about euphemisms for the genitals, is they do tend to fall into these camps. They're either really sexually loaded or they're kind of like really twee like tuppence and foof and minky. But going back to the word cunt, it was people's surnames, wasn't it? There are some records, and we should say that, like, we don't know if these are aliases that people are using or if they're genuine names, but there uh, was, like, a Guernica Cuntles in 13th century. Guernica Cuntles. It's a fabulous That's name. That's a great that, name. But there was uh, a family of cunts in 19th century Britain that turn up and um, one of them was called Fanny Cunt. That's and the name. brother was? Dick Cunt. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Such a child. So, no, no, bring it on, bring it on. In London there was Cunt Lane. There's Grope Cunt Lanes all over the country. There's one in York, one in Bristol. And they were indicative where the red light district was. Whereas we think of vagina as mm. the very sanitised positive yes we word. do but vagina actually comes from the latin vagina which is a scabbard for a sword so the whole etymological function and purpose of the word vagina is something that you put a sword into so you're basically calling it a penis holder and vulva isn't a huge amount better it could mean womb or it's also been suggested that it's from french vulva which means wrapper to wrap around something which isn't very feminist i don't think so i'm all for so cunt what's yeah. rather lovely about cunt is i suppose it's all encompassing it's we're it's talking the about thing. the whole shebang yeah viewing the vagina as in its relation to a penis i suppose actually has a really long history as well as medical texts for a long time thought of vaginas as being inverted penises and when you look at medical texts from the 15th, 16th century, what looks like a dick that you're looking at a picture of is actually a picture of a vagina. Because if you look at it, they've put a hole in the top of the penis. The ovaries were like the testicles. And that goes right through this idea that a vagina isn't an organ, it's an absence of something. Mm. You know, and Freud with his penis envy, sat off. The vagina is missing something, it's lacking a, it's something. It's a potential space it's rather space. than an actual thing. Yeah, it's a which, space for something. Which leads me on to the clitoris. Uh -huh. because there seems to be a huge fascination throughout time with the clitoris that I had mm. no idea about, mm. about the fear of it becoming erect. And basically, it's the fear that it's going to turn into a, a penis yeah. and basically and usurp the man. 
it was thought to be responsible for uh, women's un uncontrollable sexual appetites, for lesbianism, for insanity, for all of these things. And unfortunately, that led to a lot of these medical texts talking about cutting the clitoris out in order to cure, in inverted commas, this horrendous state of women enjoying sex. Yeah. And there does seem to be a whole series of um, medical, I've been putting this inverted commas, mm. experimentation on women mm. to either limit their sexuality yeah. or cure them of wanting to be interested in sex or controlling them. Yes, but a lot of it is medicalised because I suppose that gives it a sense of legitimacy. And it's all about controlling women wanting to have sex. But also it's about women threatening men, I suppose, as and, well. And given that the clitoris is only purpose, as far as we mm. know, is for pleasure. pleasure. For pleasure, yeah. So what is so powerful about pleasure that people want to control it, remove well, it? Obviously people have their own thoughts on this, but I think a lot of it is caught up with the fact that a clitoris means that a woman can have sexual pleasure and no penis be involved at all. And I think that as well is why the act of um, cunnilingus is kind of demonised and talked about in really derogatory terms. In the ancient world, the Romans and the Greeks would talk about something that really effeminate men would do, that was something revolting. And it's because you don't need a penis to do it. So you're sort of saying that, well, only effeminate people must do it, because the only people who do that, you know, the dicks can't work. Mm. That's the sort of the, the logic behind it. Talking about cunnilingus, mm. there seems to be a sort of renaissance, a fascination and focus on cunnilingus in society at the Good. moment. Yeah. I think that there's been a shift in attitudes. And I think that, you know, although we can trace back this idea that real men don't give women head, that goes right back to the ancient world. And you can see echoes of that all over the place. We're still with that today, actually. D DJ Khaled. Yep, DJ Khaled said that he would never go down on a woman. Um, DJ Khaled is a rapper yep. of some renown. That's the same idea that goes right back to the ancient Greeks. And you can see that with this idea that in order to be a man, it's all about pounding the woman like crazy. And the women's supposed to be on the end going, this is, this is brilliant, thanks for this. This is, this is dead good, I love this. But there has been a shift recently, I think, where it's actually, if you can't sexually pleasure a woman, then you're shit in bed, then you're no good at being a man. And I think that's kind of been drawn into this somehow. The idea that you should be sexually pleasuring your woman and that to be crap in bed, is not a good thing. So I, I think that this is good. When he said that, DJ Khalid came out and said that, there was a kind of reaction from heterosexual men, like The Rock. He, he, he tweeted, really? Yeah, The Rock, he tweeted something, he was like, whenever I bring my game, I bring my A game, just saying, you know, like that. And it's kind of twisted to this, like, I'm good at giving oral sex. And that's become like quite, and I'm all for it, but it is definitely like an ego thing. But that's what well. I find slightly confusing, because uh, obviously I've been learning a lot through these podcasts, and one of the things is a man give, you know, wanting to demand or force pleasure upon a woman, mm. and actually kind of like, well, women orgasm if they orgasm. I mean, they, they not necessarily choose to do so, but the circumstances and situation have to be right that they have their orgasm. Yeah. It's not necessarily about a man flicks the switches in, in no. the way he believes he should. So part of me is like, yes, bring it, rock. But also at the same time, it still seems very male egotistical. I, I, I agree completely. I think it's a definite step up from trying to cut the clitoris out of women. <sighs> it's a positive move. But I think that there's still a huge amount of performativity when it comes to sex and it's not just men that do that I think we do it across the board people it's very often it's an ego driven performance I want to be good in bed I want to have that validation and in order to do that I'm going to you're, you're gonna have the best time ever and it's as yeah. opposed to sort of a flip of submissiveness and dominance right. yeah yeah is we do perform a lot I think that's causing problems with some of the patients I see. You know, mm. we, we have had cases where the type of sex they're having has caused penile injuries, oh, God, um, vaginal injuries, can, um, perineal injuries, anal so injuries. Because it's, it's so, so vigorous. People, people, people are think, watching porn. Yeah, they're watching porn and thinking you've got to smash someone's doors in, inverted yeah. commas. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, all about pulling the penis the whole way out and then slamming it yeah. all the way in because that's visually you can You can arousing. actually see the influence of porn. I, I've noticed it a number of times with, with gentleman callers of just like, you're just there afterwards going, you've been watching porn, haven't you? Is there's like things creep in, like like putting your hands round, round my throat, but you haven't asked if that's okay to do it. No. Back in your box, Is your that man. being seen more and more in porn? Well, I'm seeing it more and more and I just... <laughs> <laughs> I just 
understand that other people are yes. as well. And this idea that, that you finish off by, by coming all over her face, which is obviously great. Women love that, to feel that they've been gunged on Noel Edmonds' house party. That's <laughs> lovely finish to that. Thank you. That, uh, that's another thing, though, is that we've got coming in discussing about the fact that they can't ejaculate the volumes they did before. And that would be a real problem because come is now part of the performance. Yes. And the more you produce, is, it's a fetishised event. Yeah, it is. I don't want to blame porn for this because I think that, that is really limited and short-sighted. Porn is... It's, it's a fantasy. Even the people in that film that are having sex are not actually having sex like that. What you're not seeing are the cuts, the breaks, the director, the guys stood behind the camera having a cup of coffee and eating their sandwiches. They're not having sex like that. And what you don't see is no matter how rough it gets, that everyone in that scene has pre-agreed limits, what's going to happen, barriers, etc, etc. And that doesn't come through. We're not educating people. If you're trying to learn about real sex from watching porn, that's like trying to learn about office Christmas parties from watching Die Hard. It's not <laughs> true. But it's true though, right? And it's, I'm seeing that more and more. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm with a gentleman caller and he smacks me across the face. What the shit are you doing? It's, oh, sorry, I thought, I thought you were... Because it's in a porn film somewhere, you know, like this kind of like slapping and getting on with it. Now, I've got nothing wrong with slap and tickle and a bit of kink, but you do have to ask first because otherwise like i wouldn't just take a two by four at the back of someone's head i wonder whether there's this feeling of having difficulty in being able to approach the subject of consent whilst maintaining the sexy the hot, atmosphere the like how does one do that well Not it's just... tricky isn't it like yeah. you know do you want to break things and go i've got a contract here i'd like to stipulate everything but it can be something as simple as look if that's your thing if you want to you know hold someone around the net while you're doing this is you just look at them and just say okay yeah. They could just just be that. Just do not assume and always be in tune with your partner. If they're lying there very, very still, stop. <laughs> you know, it just check in once in a while. It's that can be as simple as that of just yeah. like, is this okay? Yeah. Is that all right? You know, good, good sex is often referencing what the other person is doing yeah, at all right? times, aren't they? Right? You're checking in with what they're doing. Are they enjoying it? Are they not? Yeah. Uh, I mean, keeping your eyes open. I mean, so many people have their eyes closed during sex. And you're thinking, well, how can you tell if the other person's enjoying it or not? Right. And, it, and people feel we have so much shame and guilt around sex as well because we're, because we're trying to learn about it from porn. Is this, you know, sometimes dicks don't get hard. Sometimes they're not 10 foot long. Sometimes it's, you know, like women don't get wet and all this stuff. But because we think we should be performing like that, the shame that we get when we're, when we're not can be, can be really crippling. And it's, it, it's all about communication, right? It's, we need to educate people about, about porn and that this isn't real sex, I think. And is, porn isn't new. It's, the medium with it is new. The internet is new. The proliferation of it is new. But erotic, getting off to erotic texts and erotic drawings, no, 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 we've been doing that for an awfully long time. A long time. You know, uh, there's, there's erotic drawings on, on caves that cavemen were doing, you know, with erect penises, all the rest of it, the Greeks and the Romans. Their attitude to sex is vastly different from ours because they had these huge erotic frescoes that you can see at Pompeii that were in people's dining rooms. So presumably they'd just be sat there with grandma over Sunday lunch and there's a picture of somebody being buggered on the wall behind them. It's just... So what was the view there then with the room? Very difficult to say because this is what historians do is we look at artefacts and then we kind of have to try and make the story around that by looking at what fits with that. So there's lots of different interpretations and different ideas. Their attitude to sex was vastly different from our own and we can't apply our own standards back then because it won't make any sense clearly sex was very much a part of their culture and not necessarily in a <laughs> tabooed cheeky way that it is today like if you go to somewhere like Pompeii the brothels are very much just around people's houses so they clearly didn't think of it as something that needs to be sh shunted away. I remember in that Pompeii exhibition a few years back, at, was it at the British Museum? Yes. It was a brilliant exhibition and they talked quite a lot about how the servants or sl slaves, yes, were slaves they? Yeah. Mm. Um, were often brought into the marital bed to join the husband and wife, and that was a very ordinary, normal um, thing. Again, yeah, it's, so, but there is reference to that, and, and there, now we would quite rightly understand that as sexual assault and abuse, but to the Romans and the Greeks, and definitely to the Vikings, they, they did this as well. And, you know, any slave, you know, owning nation ever, is they've always understood rape is wrong, but what they've understood as being rape 
it's been very, very different. Is as part of the Greeks and the Romans is you can't rape a slave because they couldn't consent in the first place. Well, in the UK, I mean, it was legal to uh, have uh, rape your wife until yes. 1992. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so it's they do things very, very differently to, to to what we do now. But what we can pretty much say is that sex was a part of their culture in a way that it's not to us. It wasn't like sort of tabooed. It was just there. Mm. Yeah, you talk about images of the erect penis above the bakery store. Yes, and open everywhere. And open vulvas as well. Yeah. That, and that's further back, I that's think. That's as like good luck charms. You know, under like the, they're called Sheila gigs, which is these little stone carvings above churches all over Europe, particularly Celtic Europe, which is like this little kind of grotesque figure with this huge open vulva. And it really stumps historians because they're looking at it going, why is that there? And you know, like no one's quite sure. Like in medieval manuscripts, religious devotional manuscripts, there are dicks. The monk who's been doing this amazing, you know, holy, holy, holy stuff has then suddenly just gone, I think this needs a dick. And it's <laughs> nothing like a beautifully illustrated just, dick, is and it? And, and like historians just looking at it, going, trying to make sense of it, because to our modern comprehension, it makes no sense. And that's made me think about, is it the Erastes and Eremenos relationships mm. in ancient Greece, where the idea of a boy paying for patronage with their body. Yeah, yeah. it was, it, again, to us, to our modern standards, we can't get our head around it at all. It's like the worst thing that you could possibly do. And when, so like, all you can do as a historian person is just present the fact, this is what they did. But it was a very well-established and almost like institutional relationship in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome and in uh, Japan as well, was this idea that an older man would take a much younger boy, basically, prepubescent, as his apprentice, pretty much, and he would be expected to have sexual congress with him as well. And in exchange for that, he would uh, train him in the ways of the world, he'd use his connections to, you know, that it'd be it's a career move, I suppose. And mm. it was not viewed as anything, unto in fact, it was a good thing. Parents would be lining up to get their kids, um, like, please go and have sex with this. But it, it, to our modern sensibilities, it seems utterly, utterly deranged. But that was part of their culture. And, they, and if you'd said to an ancient Greek person, this, this is really isn't on that. They wouldn't have had a clue what you were talking about. And is this sort of Plato and yep. Aristotle? Yep. And the, the, these are these people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was when Oscar Wilde was on uh, trial for obscenity, he referenced those relationships. He referred to it as the love that dare not speak his name. Um, I don't think he was referring specifically to paedophilia, given that. But the idea of an older man with a, a younger man and them having a sexual relationship. He felt that was the love that dare not speak its name. So it was very much part of their culture. You reference a case where um, one of the leading politicians uh, wants to take up a very senior role and he is stopped from getting that senior role because it's revealed that he was involved in that relationship. He was the younger party. And therefore, actually, if he has sold sex before, won't he sell out you as a country? Yeah. It, that's an interesting dynamic that is, is at work here because it's not that these cultures are completely shame-free, help yourself. They do have judgment around certain acts, and what they do judge is being the younger, passive person, what in today's lexicon we might call the bottom. Being the one who is penetrated was associated with being the woman, girlish, effeminate, and that is a stigma that carries through. So there's no shame attached to being the older man, but the younger person, it was considered to be you were the effeminate role therefore the passive one and kind of more, um, yeah, likely to be insulted. I appreciate that's a very extreme version of a sort of same-sex relationship, mm. but other sort of um, historical um, aspects of same-sex relationships that you've come across? Um, well, obviously that, there's, same-sex attraction has been with us as long as we've been having sex in the first place. It gets received, understood and institutionalised in different cultures in very, very different ways. Um, and one of the difficult things when you're researching like gay or lesbian history is trying to understand how people in the past would have understood their sexuality because defining yourself by your sexuality is quite a modern thing to do the idea that you'd come out i am gay a medieval person or somebody in rome wouldn't have been able to do that because that wasn't a thing you didn't come out as your sexuality it would have made no more sense of you know somebody coming out say going i'm straight do you know what I mean? it's that kind of it just it just was for them 
Um, and also, in societies where it was heavily stigmatised and punished and all kinds of awful things, you certainly wouldn't come out and say that you were gay. They viewed it as sex acts. You know, it wasn't something that you were, it was something that you did. a state of being. A state of being, Mm. yeah. Um, So it's... That happens a lot. Is In ancient Greek, the Spartans, for example, you couldn't get married till you were 30, so they encouraged same-sex relationships for the men, especially when they were training in the in the military. Why couldn't you get married till you were 30? Because you had to be in the army. You had to... And that was your job. You were a soldier, and women were a distraction, quite frankly, um, so you couldn't get married until you were 30. So you had sex with each other. And that was, you know, you weren't being gay, you were just having sex. That was how they understood it. The idea that your sexuality is part of your identity is relatively new, especially because, you know, we've stopped burning people now, so they can actually come out and say these things. But, yeah, same-sex relationships have always been with us, absolutely. We talk a lot about male same-sex relationships, and there seems to be a sort of shadow. Was it Queen Victoria didn't even have the idea presented to her that there could be a law against lesbianism, because actually that would never happen. There's such an invisibility, isn't there, about it? Yeah, it's a myth that Queen Victoria wouldn't sign that into law because she just refused to believe that lesbians didn't existed. But you are right, is that it just wasn't even presented to her as an option. It just wasn't even there. And that always fascinates me, and I don't fully have the answer to it, is why has it been predominantly men and same-sex relationships have been so heavily stigmatised and punished and controlled, and lesbianism has just always been kind of viewed as this kind of, like, you know, jolly japes, and girls being girls. And it's very rarely caused the same amount of uh, sanction and punishment. It does occasionally. In Holland, there was a spate of burning women known as female sodomites, um, I think that was 17th century, I think. But overwhelmingly, it's been men that have been punished for same-sex desire, that have been executed, etc., etc. And there's a lot of idea about, well, why was that? Why weren't women punished as well? And I think it's got something to do with the penis and being yeah. penetrated. Yeah, it's about the power of the penis, It's, it's the penis again, isn't it? And, it's, and it's, again, the idea of lack, lack. Of a vagina being yeah. some sort of black hole. Yeah, and you still get people, still hear them occasionally going, what do lesbians do? And then all the lesbians laugh. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like this idea of like, well, if you don't have a penis, you just obviously you're not doing anything at all. It's impossible for you to... That sort of weird thing that we have, this obsession with penis and vagina sex. Yeah. And... It's the act of penetration and someone taking on the girl's role that has been so threatening throughout history. And the lack of being able to get an erection causes such yes. distress such because distress. it's such a marker of masculinity. Yes. Of you know, you can't have sex if you haven't got an erection. And you know, that's certainly what we've we've been talking about a lot is the fact yeah. that actually a penis is part of the sexual repertoire if you wanted it to be. But for women, out of course, is much more interesting um, for the majority of people we've talked to. It's so true. Is If you said to most women, would you rather have someone with an erect penis and that will pound you for an hour? Brilliant. Or would you rather have somebody who went down on you and really knew what they were doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sort of pretty much, you know, I'm pretty sure that, that most women would, would go for the, you know, the, the last time there's anything wrong with the phone, mm. but we do have this obsession with it that if that isn't there, it's not proper sex. And I think that that's why lesbianism has not been punished, because it's this idea that they're not having proper sex Which somehow. I thought is really explored in a very interesting way in your section about virginity, mm. which is what is virginity? We think that we know what we mean when we say virginity or losing virginity. It's like that word prostitute, or many words where we just use it, but we don't really think about it. But when you actually, what does that mean? You lose your virginity first time you have sex. Right, what does that mean? Uh, and then, oh, oh, penis and vagina. So, like, do we count oral sex? If you have oral sex with your partner, but there's no penises going in, he's still a virgin. Uh, if two women, uh, lesbians, have sex with one another, are they still virgins? What about if there's fingers or toys? Or if there was anal sex involved, but not penis and vagina sex? Are we all still virgins then? And when you really start to push it, it actually doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't mean anything. It really, and it's not, and we talk about it in terms of you losing something. It's, it, you don't lose anything. I was at a conference, it was a teaching conference, so we're talking uh, probably 200 sexual health and sexual function doctors from around the world, and we're halfway through this uh, amazing discussion, and one of the delegates stands up and goes, so how do we prove our women are virgins then? Oh, get in the sea, fuck off. <laughs> you can't. That's one of the longest and most persistent myths about virginity, is that you can somehow prove that somebody is a virgin. No, you can't. It's, it's still around the world today is a source of great shame and anxiety and uh, things like that. this idea that you have to be sexually pure. 
Um, and that a virginity test can somehow prove that, and of course it can't. And people selling their virginity <laughs> over and over again. I it love this gets, idea. It gets fetishized, doesn't it? Is this, you know, that like you're know, the first person someone have sex with, and you know, there's there's a market there, and you get lots of records in the 18th century when writing really starts to become prolific, and you get lots of erotica records of how to fake your virginity in books like um, Fanny Hill, which is you know supposed to be the first modern pornographic novel, she tells you in great detail how you fake a virginity for a client. You know, you get a sponge next to the bed, keep it covered in blood and very surreptitiously insert it and then, you know, make the appropriate noises and you've produced blood. It's still so persistent that it was only in the last couple of years that the World Health Organization has had to issue a statement on virginity tests around the world to go, will you stop doing it? You know, and that's 2019. Yes. So it's still there. Yeah. And people paying to have their hymens... Oh, paying to have their hymens stitched back together. What is that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't want to be too mean about that, actually, because I am aware that some people have that procedure because they fear that they've lost their virginity and they need, you know, when they're going to get married. They need you know, proof. They need and proof. If, and, and if they don't cultures. have that proof, that was incredibly damaging within yeah. that culture. Yeah. So I, I, I recognise why you know, some women feel they're driven to that. Yeah. Do you argue it's for the greater good? You know, if you are someone who repairs people's hymens for a living, are you arguing actually if they do go back to their cultures or countries where they need to have a rupturing to anoint the bed and, and they don't have that, that would be dangerous to them, then actually that's a practical, sensible thing to be I doing. Can, I can see that. I mean, it's, it's the systems that surround it, isn't it, that are at fault. I, I can see why. But it's all part of the same narrative, isn't it, This that you've got to bleed and prove somehow. That a woman's value is completely based on her sexual inexperience. Yeah. Even today you have things in America called mm. purity balls. This is a, a custom in America, not all over America we should say, but some Americans get a purity ball where a father takes his daughter to a ball and basically she pledges to be a virgin and he kind of says that he's going to protect his daughter and it's all about this abstinence based it's like the Jonas education. Brothers were wearing purity rings purity weren't rings, they that's what I'm thinking of yes well people were going to doctors because a lot of women were saying well I want to have intercourse oh, but I can't right. I have to protect my virginity so I have anal so with my boyfriend but they have so little knowledge about how to do it or anything like oh, that or God. lubrication that they no end up having no one uses a lubricant and you think that is extraordinary going, you know, you're inserting a penis into an anus for the first time and you're not going to use a lubricant again goes back to the idea of what is virginity what is then it? right yeah if it's just penis and vagina sex so, but, but anal sex fine fine yeah. you help yourself it's fill your boots <laughs> Virginity doesn't really mean anything. Mm. That's the thing. And because it doesn't really mean anything, we try and find technicalities to work around it. And it's just this huge stress and pressure on women to remain sexually inexperienced. To horrific effect. Yeah. And, and you make that very pertinent connection to FGM. Yeah. Probably the main cause of FGM is about protecting virginity. Uh, virginity as a prerequisite to marriage. Yeah, it's, it's horrendous. The, the, the levels of mutilation. Some cases of FGM, the clitoris is cut out as well, and the, the, the vulva is sewn together, it has to be cut open on the wedding night. The effect of this stuff is really severe. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, it makes me think about then male circumcision. Yep. But I hadn't understood that why it's so prevalent in America is partly because of Mr. Kellogg. This started around about the 18th century, this idea that masturbation is really bad for you. 
And it actually has its roots in much, much older belief that um, they, they said these things about women as well, but predominantly men. And it's this idea that if you orgasm and lose semen, that you somehow weaken your energy and your masculinity. And I sat thinking about it for a while, where does this come from? And I think that the idea is after a man has orgasmed, he gets very sleepy. If you think about a man just before he orgasms and just after he orgasms, these are two very different creatures when it comes to energy levels. This plays a part in tantric movements and Taoism. This idea that losing seminal fluid depletes your energy reserves. And if your masculinity is being lost or ebbing away, then obviously you must try and replace it. And if what you're worried about is that it's semen that's caused this loss or, or if like it's a loss of um, sort of like male potency, then the obvious thing you need to replace it with is testicles. <laughs> That makes perfect sense, everyone knows that. Um, so what you get in the late 19th, early 20th century, just like the dawn of when they're starting to discover what hormones are and things like that, is this idea that you can replace or, or reboot your masculinity by inserting extracts of monkey testicles or goat testicles directly into the scrotum. There are a number of different um, experiments and ways that you could do this. One of them was injecting testicles with the semen of I think it was monkeys at one point. But uh, another one that became really, really big in the 20th century was actually transplanting slivers of skin taken from a monkey's testicles into the scrotum of a patient. And it reached a fever pitch in around about 1920 and it became so extreme that in Chicago there was actually a number of cases of where young men woke up having been drugged the night before and when they went to the hospital it found out that their testicles had been taken out of the scrotal sac and restitched. And it happened four times, I think there were four instances of it, and the police genuinely believed that the glands were being stolen by a rich person who was paying to have some them Some old rich sense. gentleman saying, go yeah. out and find me some young testicles. Find me some young testicles. But around about the 18th century, this really starts to get ramped up. And you see publications of things like um, a treatise on onanism and the dangers of masturbation. And doctors start saying that if you masturbate too much, if you lose too much semen, you will basically die. Masturbation is terminal. And that's where this myth, if you masturbate too much, you go blind comes from because you've weakened your body and this really gets going in the 19th century you can see these awful anti-masturbation devices there's some of them in the welcome trust which is basically a ring with teeth on the inside that you'd put around the penis to stop an erection or a nocturnal emission in the middle of the night and those so those are physiological responses actually just mm. trying to feed blood to the penis they're not related to sexual arousal at all and most men have them almost every hour so you can imagine your willy is stuck inside an iron maiden and every time, involuntarily, you get an erection. What is that going to do to you? It's horrendous, isn't it? Someone told me recently that women, when we talk about female erections, I'm talking about the erection of the clitoris here as a blood-filled organ, um, that that happens to women as well every night, that we have as many erections as the penis do throughout we? the night, but we're just not aware of it. The body's very much use it or lose it. So if you don't fill your penis full of um, oxygenated blood on a regular basis, your brain thinks, what's the evolutionary use of you? So it causes programmed cell suicide of the penile wow. cells and um, sexual cells. So basically you get a shorter, more scarred penis, which most people don't really want. Oh, poor penises. So I would just recommend to everyone, even if you are... Sort of, basically, yes. And you also get a 30% reduction in prostate cancer. Well, that, that's, um, that's the other thing. Is actually coming a lot, it's good for you. But 19th century, Wanking is very much off the menu. It was considered a sign of deviancy. It was really dangerous to your health. They've got all of these pictures of like men who looked really happy in the beginning and then they kind of wither to just this absolute nothingness by the end. Oh no, it's time I wanked myself dead. <laughs> and it's funny, but the consequence of this is pretty horrific because one of the cures for stopping a boy from masturbating was circumcision. And uh, people like John Harvey Kellogg, who was a physician, in inverted commas, recommended circumcision without anaesthetic to stop men from masturbating. Grown men. Grown men and boys. To remind them of the pain. Yeah, I'm sure there are many circumcised men listening to this going, uh, don't work. But it was this idea that if you caused pain, if you basically mutilated the penis, that you would stop them from masturbating and yeah that's one of the reasons why circumcision is so prevalent especially in america today because we always think of it of course as um something done for hygiene which is where it came from in islam and in, does, in judaism it it's very easy to focus on women and you know the horrible things that were done to their 
genitals and, and people with vulvas, etc. Um, but penises have really suffered throughout history as well. And this idea that they're dirty, the foreskin isn't a fault. It's not a design flaw. Just, just soap and water, it's fine. You don't need to cut it, bits it of it off. It protects the penis head. It allows it to be more sexually sensitive. And also foreskins, men have sex with their foreskins when they're inside someone else. So for example, when you're having sex, men mostly are actually having sex with their own foreskin. When they're masturbating, they often don't pull the foreskin back. They just wank with the foreskin. So the foreskin goes backwards and forwards underneath their hand. So what you're removing is sensitivity and the basic way most people have sex. And it doesn't keep it clean. But this idea of being clean is it's not actually about being physical. It's metaphorical cleanliness. It's about sex and this idea that it's dirty and that we need to do things to keep the body clean and morally pure. There is a very, very long history of viewing the vulva as a dirty place and needs to be scrubbed out and sanitised and everything else. That has a really, really, really long history. And again, it's, it becomes medicalised and you read about, especially in the Victorian times, uh, this idea of douching about cleanliness. There are some doctors that are recommending douching like four or five times a day. And if it was just water, you'd go, this isn't a great idea. You are going to get thrush, but it is just water. But it wasn't. It, they wanted to put acids in there. They wanted to put salts in there. And Lysol disinfectant was used right up until the 1940s uh, and marketed as a vaginal douche. It's like oh. a bleach type It's thing. a bleach. It's like Silic Bang. But, and it was uh, marketed very, very aggressively at women. And if you look at the advertising campaigns, they call it um, like marital hygiene. Uh, and they've got pictures of women and like the husband's walking out the door and the, the post will say something like, uh, she was a wonderful wife apart from one neglect. She neglected her feminine hygiene. And it's like what's implicit there is that because she didn't swill out her genitals with floor cleaner, her husband has left. Because obviously now it's such a huge marketing campaign. Oh, I nice. mean, the amount of femme freshes and femme washes. That's is a huge. leftover legacy of this is the idea that the vulva needs its own specialist cleaning products. I hate it so much. We get yeah. people all the time with bacterial vaginosis um, that get a sort of fishy aroma, um, sort of discharge, and it's because they have changed the internal environment inside the vagina. It's designed to be slightly acidic so that it stops the flourishing of the, the wrong type of bacteria, should we say. You then wash it all out with water or soap or these femme-fresh products, which changes the pH, and you get the bacteria that you don't want there. Yeah. They and think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. because you're going to wash out again and again so it makes me so angry that people are allowed to sell these products that are actually both controlling and physically damaging to women and all resting on shame all yes. resting on this idea that you need something special to clean out your vulva because there's something wrong with you that, that's the implicit suggestion right it's because when you go and get a specialist cleaning product for something you're saying that it needs it's a big job here and it's this idea that if it doesn't smell like a car air freshener then you've somehow failed as a woman. Well, I'm here to tell you that pussy has a sexy smell and you should not be washing it out or getting rid of it. In fact, there have been new studies that show the smell of the vulva actually creates an erotic reaction in men when they smell them. There is a chemical compound released by the vulva and men that have been exposed to that you know, in laboratory conditions, will not only rate themselves as more sexually attractive than those who have not, but they will rate women as more sexually attractive than those who have not. So your pussy is capable of changing the chemical processes inside a man's brain, and you're trying to wash it away, trying to make it smell like a bowl of Jolly Ranchers or something, and it, it's not supposed to. It absolutely drives me nuts. Yeah, I hate it. I don't think we're very good as accepting the fact that bodies are natural. You discuss pubic hair brilliantly in the book and you talk about, well, when did body hair become something to be ashamed of? Mm. And there's references going right back to, I think, was it the Greek period? Yep, that was uh, some graffiti on the walls in Pompeii near a brothel. Um, and it, it says, a hairy cunt is better when fucked and releases steam. I'm not quite sure what was going on there. But what you can take away from that is that clearly some cunts didn't have hair for someone to have made a choice preference like that. I feel the need to write this on a wall. I'm, I'm a big hair fan. I'm going to write this down. Um, and there is reference to the, the, the slaves that would have been used to groom rich women's pubic hair. They were called picatrixes. That was their job. And I suppose that this is probably because there was a lot of public bathing going on, so people would see the area. For a lot of time, it was considered really good, especially when you get to the 
uh, early modern period, about the 16th uh, century or so, having a full bush was considered a sign of good health. <laughs> we think of the 60s and 70s as the big bush era. We do. And you point out that actually it wasn't a particularly big bush era. It was just pornography had begun. What happens with pornography and the fact that it's so readily available now is that it becomes the normal, right? It's like, because like you don't often see your friend's genitals. <laughs> in fact, very, very rarely do you see friends. So the people's genitals you see tend to be in porn, which is why that becomes what's normal for people. So when porn really got going with like Penthouse and Hustler and things in the 70s, you saw bushes. Bushes were absolutely everywhere because women had pubic hair. The idea of taking it all off and falling out of fashion. But the, the bush wasn't back in as many words it kind of never really been away and then you talk about the changing of fashions of styles mm. and how that affected hair removal yes because when you start getting bikinis and mini skirts and underwear shots in magazines that were being pushed and becoming fashionable they didn't want hair because up, upper legs. sort of upper thigh hair yeah. would be problematic but even mini skirts yeah. even just hair removal on the legs hair removal on the legs well. and uh, sleeveless dresses that came in the 1920s mm. underarm hair removal is gone and again it's this idea that it's unsightly it's unsightly body hair and it's this sort of strange dynamic and attitude that we have to body hair. But when Julia Roberts turned up at oh, one of the awards, they'd never seen a picture of an actress wearing a beautiful gown and having armpit hair, See, it that, seemed incongruous. That's the thing, is because we've now created that to be our normal and we replicate it and we follow it and people don't want to break the mould. But the response, I think, is extraordinary, which is disgust. Yeah, that's the thing that has always caught my attention because obviously on the Twitter feed and on the website, post a lot of images of vintage erotica. They tend to have full bushes. They t- it's of very little consequence to them because that's just normal for most people. And it will almost always get a reaction online. Somebody will voice disgust. And it's that level of revulsion that I find really quite fascinating. Isn't it? When did it get to be quote unquote gross? It's hair that we've all gotten. It's hair that's supposed to be there. I mean, I don't want to shame anybody's choice. Not at all. I think do whatever you want. Wax the lot off, grow it out. It doesn't matter. That's, you help yourself. But don't do it because you think that it's dirty or disgusting or, you know. Or, or someone else needs you to be that way to be attractive. To it. It's that performativity again, isn't it? Yeah. And don't ever shame somebody else for having their own body hair the way that they want it. That's something yes. that we could all stop doing. Yeah. I do feel that beauticians are quite pushy. They make a lot of money, though. Yes, yeah. You know, and it's like, how are you going to book the trend? Because it's all very well for me to be saying, you know, let's let's grow our bushes and our armpit hairs and everything. But that, if you're an actress or something like that, that will have an impact. And it's um, weird, it's easier said than done, is walking down the street with your armpit hair flowing freely. <laughs> I'd feel nervous about doing that. You write about the sort of pseudoscience of racism. I was just fascinated to read about how these women were paraded around Europe to display their physical status. Yeah, it's the really horrible aspect of history, but it is what it is. It's important to know about it. But white people were obsessed and fascinated with black people's bodies. They still are in many ways. Like, you know, there are special categories on Pornhub for big black cock. But they were obsessed in the area of racism and colonialism with looking to the bodies of the cultures they were colonising for basically for proof that they needed colonising. It's mm. this strange thing that happened. And the white colonisers that took slaves and, and basically subjugated black people in the 15th, 17th century, looked at their bodies as evidence that they were less um, evolved than they were, that they were more sexually uh, voracious, they were more in need of control, etc., uh, etc., et and their bodies seemed to offer proof of this. The most famous case is Sarah Bartman in the early 19th century. She was a South African woman, and um, she was taken from her homeland and put in freak shows basically and they basically came to stare at her bottom because it was a large bottom and stare at her labia as well uh, and she was known as the hot and top venus so she was basically paraded all around europe and this was considered proof because she had a larger bottom and large labia that this must mean that she's more sexually voracious than a white woman white people looked at the bodies of black women and black men and used that as evidence to justify their own superiority and what they were doing to them. And it's hideous. So poor Sarah Bartman was 
carted all around Europe by various doctors, quote-unquote, and she was driven to alcoholism, she died very young, and even when she died in France, they took casts of her and they kept that in museums around Paris and they put her genitals in specimen jars and they kept those and invited people to look at them and they were still there in the 80s and 90s and it wasn't until Nelson Mandela personally intervened that her remains were finally taken back to South Africa and repatriated and that was just because white people fetishized the black woman and her body and made her sexual and justified their own brutalization of her. You really mentioned horrible. that part of that exoticism mm. or exoticizing yep. of the black body was a lure for um, European men to join the armies within the colonies. Yeah. What you've got basically is you've got a load of white people coming from white European countries which tend to be dominated by like Christianity, Catholicism and they tend to be quite sexually repressed and so to them it looked like these, these places were just full of sexual lunatics because the women had their breasts out and they were dancing and the men were having fun and they didn't share this attitude of sex is terrible please wear a corset buttoned up to your chin don't ever do this etc it never occurred to them that they were wrong and so they became obsessed and that they fetishized it became highly sexual and still in like the early 20th century when they were trying to lure Europeans to join uh, the, sort of the Foreign Legion and go and visit the colonies to extent that the advertisement tend to feature heavily sexualized women of color with the idea of if you join the army and go and work in the colonies you'll get to have loads of sex with these nymphomaniacs who live out there and it's it's very uncomfortable to see it but there it is that's what it is and it's important that we know about it because the fetishization of women in color and black women in particular is still a real issue today you know the obsession with the body with the with the booty you know it kind of all has its roots in this colonial oppression and now the cultural appropriation of the black body people try of wearing these corsets and trying to like the kardashians for example trying to emulate this hourglass figure yep and and of course uh twerking as well this is you know i first saw twerking when i went on holiday to jamaica about 10 years ago and I snuck into a bar and I saw a woman doing it in just this bar and I'd never seen anything like it in my entire life. What did you make of it? I couldn't believe that people could move their bodies like that. I'd never seen anything. I've never felt more white in my entire, or middle class in my entire life. But, you know, when you leave white people on their own on an island, we came up with river dance, for fuck's sake. I was absolutely hypnotised by it. But it wasn't until years later, now everybody's heard about it, but black women have been doing that dance for centuries. And it, so then you, then, you know, you've got like belly dancing in different cultures and like the yeah, movement of the true. hips. Whereas uh, throughout history in Western cultures, the hips have been very, stay the fuck still. Put a corset around it, yeah. keep, don't move your hips, do yes. not move your ass. And we're going to cover you in padding, we're going to cover absolutely everything. So we would, it, you do not move your hips. But in many cultures, that dance movement, that fluid thing, that is very much black women's dance and their heritage and it wasn't until Miley Cyrus did her little twerky thing that people took yeah suddenly became acceptable that's white privilege isn't it I I, perhaps I do feel slightly uncomfortable about what well what I feel uncomfortable about is the fact that this has been a dance that has been going on in um, black culture for an awfully long time and then it was sort of like treated as it was something new I think that that's the really shitty thing I I completely hear that it is Perhaps we should just stay away from it as white people and perhaps we shouldn't be doing it. But Morris dancing is shit. And I, I, it's just so amazing and beautiful to look at that. I think that we can learn a lot from it. This idea that the Victorians invented the vibrator to masturbate women to orgasm, to cure them of hysteria, that has that sort of become established as a bit of a, a popular cultural myth. There's been some films based around it, hysteria, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it gets talked about a lot by I've heard academics and historians talking about it. But it always struck me as odd because, as we were talking about earlier, the Victorians weren't big on masturbation. Don't get me wrong; they were wanking, of course they were. If you read the Victorian porn, they were wanking loads. But medically, they didn't think this was a very good idea. Were these people really going to masturbate women to? Orgasm, and the more I was reading about it, the more like all the medical literature was saying that orgasms are actually bad. 
And when I started looking into it, yeah, the Victorians invented the vibrator. They did, they did. But it's not a vibrator that would look like a vibrator today. What they invented it was called the vibrating cure because then electricity was toted as this amazing cure for everything. And the first vibrator in inverted commas, it was called a percussor. And what it looks like is a hammer, like a really thin hammer that was uh, electronically driven to like bang against the body just gently. And it was called being percussed. That was the Victorian vibrator. And was it used for muscles? Yeah, muscles. Muscles. They were. They did invent vibrators, and but they were for muscles. Now that doesn't mean that people at one point or another didn't look at it and think, "Oh, hello." That's what the Hitachi wand was. Uh, was, was an ultrasound yeah. device, basically a, a vibrating device to relax muscles. Yeah. And women thought, "Well, let's just bring that a couple of feet lower, yeah, but, um, relax something else." Yeah. Um, so of course, people eventually would have used it for that. But the Victorian vibrators—they look like pneumatic drills. But what they did do was they had something called pelvic massage. Uh, and this is kind of where this sort of like mix of weird pseudoscience that the myth that they invented vibrators and masturbated women comes from. A pelvic massage was um, like manipulating the womb, quote unquote. But a lot of it was done externally. A lot of it was done like pushing down on the abdomen, uh, like, you know, wiggling women around, shaking them from side to side. But some of it was internal. It was supposed to be really good to help cure women from all this hysteria stuff. But absolutely crucially, there is no mention of an orgasm. And the way <laughs> the way that it's written about how you bring up the skirt and hold yep. the corset and open it yep. and, and how you, you sort of digitate the vagina and the number of fingers you use in the position. Yep. And it was all what you do with the other hand as well on yes. the estimate. Yeah. It's like, oh okay. It's just finger it. But it does it does say at one point it says that, that if she becomes what's the expression is just like Sexually agitated, irritated, irritated. That's the word. Sexually irritated, which is like if she's getting turned on. Basically, it's very clear about you push down hard to cause pain to stop her from doing that. There was a patent for a um, a womb battery, and you can see this horrendous contraption in the nineteenth century. It's an actual metal battery, right, with a spike on the end that you inserted into the cervix that would sit at the top of the vagina with the idea that it would send electrical currents to the womb. And this was supposed to help cure female ills. So the Victorians were perfectly capable of doing absolutely insane things to women and their vaginas, but they didn't invent the vibrator to masturbate women to cure hysteria. But the modern machines that we're focused on nowadays, of course, sex, sex robots. robots. I hadn't heard about that guy running the company Harmony, yeah. whose aim now is to get his sex robots answering questions and responding to touch. That, that's the next <laughs> thing. That's the next level. We've that's gone very thing. far away from blow up dolls. Yeah, we have. And there's, there's a lot of concern and people are worried about this. Like, well, what does this mean that we're going to have robots that we could have sex with? But humans have been having sex with bits of machinery for an awfully long time. It, the technology is what fascinates people. And we're always interested in well, exactly how far can we push this. And there will be sex robots at some point, but they will always be a novelty. They are not going to replace actual human contact. I wonder, I wonder almost the, the other part of it, actually, going, why would you necessarily engage in human contact when that is challenging for you? So if you, you are not the average person, or you feel that you're not likely to be able to get a relationship with someone, the sex robot would provide company and tactility and response um, and sex, which you might not necessarily feel you're able to get in the real world. So there's a real part of me that thinks that actually the availability of these sex robots may really meet a need that's unmet in certain sections of society. There is a big online community of uh, people that feel really deeply attached to their sex dolls. Idolaters, I think that's what they call themselves. Idolaters. Idolaters. But they still very much look like dolls that have an electronic voice that, you know, they're not quite at that companion, sexy, re super realistic stage just yet. And you're still going to have to take the vagina out and wash it after <laughs> you've finished. But... I don't want to shame anybody's kink, and if, that, if that's important to you, then you do you. If we're all adults and we're consenting, then fine. Although some interesting theological issues have been risen about kind of sex doll consent. <laughs> and then all the humanities people, we lose our freaking minds. <laughs> <laughs> Just, does it have consent? Can it not have consent? And feminists are starting to suggest that, well, because the doll can't consent, is this actually propagating rape culture because the doll can never say yes or no or all the rest of it. So there's all these kind of, it does attract a lot of quite intense debates. I suppose part of me, my only concern, I think, 
thinks about the reductive nature of of what they're able to provide. It's um, true, but I mean, the sex toys by their nature are reductive. I mean, a dildo is a massive reduction. It's just oh, a yeah. disembodied <laughs> dick. So it's a right vulva in a can. So I mean, the vulva in a can. Or the, I mean, yeah. I think that you're right. There is an argument to be made that they objectify and fetishize and they play into narratives about the like reduce women only to holes to be shagged and you know great big pneumatic tits and all the rest of it but i don't think that that is new that narrative well you show that brilliantly in this revelation that the first sex doll pretty much is the barbie doll the barbie doll was based on a a german doll a, a lily doll and the lily doll was actually a high class call girl she started life in this kind of comic sort of burlesque thing and they made little lily dolls and she was kind of you know slutty and sexy looking <laughs> and that became really popular and then like you know the people over in america looked and thought we'll make we'll make a doll of our own and that was where barbie came from so she does have her origins in a german sex doll sex doll and yeah. I, I love the fact that you say she's had however many professions hundreds of professions but <laughs> never has she returned to her original no. which is that of a sex worker no she's ne never had sex worker barbie that's i'm all for that personally <laughs> a curious history of sex is published by unbound and will be available to buy in february 2020 you can pre-order your copy now at waterstones and amazon thank you for listening to the pleasure podcast if you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. Thank you. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com